إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله So last time then we began the chapter regarding the speech of Allah, the words of Allah. And that was the chapter, Bab Qawlillahi Ta'ala, قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ الْبَحْرُ مِدَادًا لِكَلِمَاتِ رَبِّي لَنَفِدَ الْبَحْرُ قَبْلَ أَنْ تَنْفَدَ كَلِمَاتُ رَبِّي وَلَوْ جِئْنَا بِمِثْلِهِ مَدَدًا The ayah and several other ayat in the chapter heading to where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that if the ocean was ink for the words of my Lord, the ocean would run out, but the words of my Lord would not run out, even if you came with another ocean to the likes of it. So this was all highlighting the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the speech of Allah, and that it is not restricted in any way. It cannot be restricted even by the oceans, seven, eight oceans, if they were to come full of ink, then the words of Allah would not run out. Those oceans would run out. So this topic, we briefly touched upon it in the earlier chapters, the topic regarding the attribute of speech, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the attribute of speech. Here it's following on from that topic around the same topic of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we said the madhab of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah is that this is an attribute of Allah. Allah speaks and Allah spoke to Musa alayhi salam directly and Allah spoke to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam directly and the Quran Allah spoke it it was heard directly by Jibreel alayhi salam words and sounds that were heard so that is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala <coughs> So then here, the Shaykh, Al-Shaykh Al-Thaymeen, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala, he mentions a hadith that is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The hadith where it says, Anna Allah Ta'ala yaqulu yawma al-qiyamah, that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says on the day of judgment, Ya Adam, O Adam, Fayaqul, so he will say, Labbayka wa sa'adayk, and that is a phrase indicating that I am here in your service. Fayunada bisawtin, then it is called out with a voice, إِنَّ اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكَ أَنْ تُخْرِجَ مِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِكَ 
بعثاً إلى النار فيقول يا ربي وما بعث النار قال من كل ألف تسعمائة وتسعة وتسعون ألف إلا واحد كلهم في النار من بني آدم نسأل الله أن ينجينا وإياكم منها فهذا صريح في أنه عز وجل ينادي بصوت وهو مذهب أهل السنة والجماعة That on the day of judgment Allah will say to Adam or Adam and he will say that I am here present in your service then a voice will call out indeed Allah commands you to take out from your offspring a group for the fire so he will say and how much is that group how many of them and then Allah will say min kulli alf from every thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine from every thousand alf illa wahid kulluhum fin nar min bani adam nine hundred and ninety-nine from a thousand end up in the In the fire. But the point of the narration is فَيُنَادَى بِصَوْتٍ That Adam is then called, spoken to with a voice. So this affirms the voice and that is the madhab of Ahlul Sunnah that Allah speaks and it's with a voice and with letters and sounds. Just as the Qur'an was spoken with a voice and letters and sounds that Jibreel salam heard. As for the people of innovation, the Ashairah, the Ashairah, they say, they reject the speech of Allah. They reject that Allah speaks. And they say that the speech of Allah is kalamun nafsi. It is kalamun nafsi, meaning that Allah doesn't actually speak. It's not something that is actually heard. It is not sound or letters but it is a meaning that exists within Allah like you might say a thought you've got inside of yourself you've got a thought about something inside of yourself you're thinking about that but you're not saying it there's no voice there's no sound you're not talking but it's something you're saying to yourself inside. A thought inside of yourself. They say that is what the speech of Allah is. It is within Allah. How we think of a thought that you have inside of yourself. But it's not spoken. There is no voice. There is no sound. There is no letter. 
But then in that case, if that's how it actually is, as they claim, then how did Musa alayhi salam hear Allah? When we said before, Musa alayhi salam asked Allah to be able to see him. And then Allah replied to Musa alayhi salam, Lan tarani. So how did Musa alayhi salam hear those things? If there is no actual speech of Allah, there is no actual sound, there is no actual letters or words. And Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam also, how did he hear on the night of al-Isra al-Mi'raj, for example, if there is no actual voice or sound or letters or words, what does it mean that Allah spoke to Musa alayhi salam? And Allah spoke to Muhammad What does it mean then? According to the Asha'ira, it is only self-thoughts inside of you. No actual voice or sounds or words. So then how do they explain it? They say, قَالُوا خَلَقَ صَوْتًا سَمِعَهُ مُوسَى they say that the internal speech of Allah that isn't actually speech, there's no voice or sounds, Allah doesn't speak like that. <coughs> they say Musa heard though, because Allah basically made those thoughts made those thoughts into a created voice that Musa then heard. So it wasn't the voice of Allah, wasn't Allah speaking, it was Allah creating that speech into something, into a voice that Musa heard. Either a voice in the tree, so the tree spoke to Musa or a voice in the valley, the valley, a voice came from it that spoke to Musa salam, or anything, they say anything like that. Allah created a voice somewhere, and that's where Musa salam heard that, he didn't hear Allah, Allah didn't speak to him. Allah created what he wanted to say into a created voice, in the tree, in the valley, in this, in that, whatever. That's what they claim. The obvious question to ask is, not so obvious then if you don't know, huh? The obvious question to ask would be, what is your evidence for this claim that a voice was created in a tree, or a voice was created in the valley, or a voice was created anywhere else? Where have you found that in the ayat, in the tafsir, in the ahadith? Anywhere. Where have you found that claim? Anywhere. It is purely, as they say, out of thin air. So how do you make these claims and how do you make these explanations that have no basis whatsoever? So that's what they claim anyway, that Allah made a voice occur in a tree or the valley or some other object. And that's what Musa salam heard. And that's what Muhammad salam heard. 
Some of them as well, when you look into the aqidah of the Ashairah and their variations of explanation how to get around this, some of them say again the same thing that it was internal to Allah. His speech is internal to Him. It's not something that He actually says. It's not spoken. There's no voice. There's no sound. So then how did Jibreel get the Qur'an? You could say the same as this explanation that Allah created a voice somewhere that then recited that Qur'an and Jibreel heard it from there, possibly. Some of them say, no, Jibreel didn't hear anything. He went and got the Qur'an from, from the preserved tablet. Written in the preserved tablet, he got it from there and took it, learnt it and, t- and went and taught the Prophet Others, they say, that it was, and the closest word I can think of, maybe there's better words, telepathic. Where you can understand what somebody is saying, you can feel it and work it out with this sixth sense. So you can hear what is inside of a person. Some of the Ashairah say that. That Jibreel alayhi salam, he got the Qur'an in this, the word possibly these days, telepathic way. That he telepathically, and I think that means what we're explaining here. Telepathic, it means those types of things. That you're getting something with the sixth sense from inside of somebody else. This supernatural way. They say that's what Jibreel did. It was a inverted commas, telepathic type of thing that occurred. That he was able to understand the Qur'an from Allah without Allah saying it or speaking it. All of this from thin air as it is said. There is no basis for any of those explanations. No evidence, nothing from the Salaf. That is simply them trying to explain their way out. Because remember the basic problem with the people of innovation. They basically decide on what the correct aqidah is supposed to be. They look at things with their minds and their brains and their intellects and they decide what that is supposed to mean and what it's supposed to be. Their intellect is given the priority over all else. So they read an ayah, they read something, and then their intellect makes something of it. What their intellect and their mind and their brain makes of it, that is the aqidah. That is what it has to be. That is what our intellects have worked out. Now, once they've gone through that stage of working something out with their intellect, these ayat, these ahadith, they've examined them and their intellect has come to a conclusion that's got to be X, Y, and Z. Of course, that X, Y, and Z conclusion may be completely in opposition to the actual meaning of those ayat. So here, when they've come to a conclusion with their minds that no, Allah doesn't speak. That's a conclusion they've come to from these ayat and evidences that it can't mean Allah actually speaks. They've made that conclusion. Now that they've made the conclusion, they have the problem that the Quran and the Sunnah has multiple evidences telling you that Allah speaks and it's an attribute of Allah. But they've already decided what it means. So now they have to go through all of those evidences and adjust them, alter them, change them, misinterpret them 
to make them all fit with the conclusion that their intellects have already come to. So now they've decided, no, Allah doesn't speak like that. There is no speech of Allah like that. This attribute of speech that Musa salam, Muhammad salam, heard Allah speak, Jibreel heard Allah speak, no, it's not like that. They've decided that. Their intellects have decided upon that position. Now, when they come to all these evidences, they need to interpret them in some way to make them fit in line with the decision they've already made. So that's when they end up with all of these things, that there was a voice made in a tree maybe, there was a voice made in the valley, there was telepathic things, Jibreel went to the preserved tablet and got the Qur'an. These explanations are all attempts by the people of innovation to justify the conclusion that they've already made. Whereas Ahlul Sunnah, it is the complete opposite. You look at all of the evidences, what's in the Quran, what's in the Sunnah, what they are telling you, from them all you finally realize a conclusion. Not that your brain tells you, okay, this has all got to mean X, Y, and Z, and then you've got to make it all fit to mean the X, Y, and Z you've already decided on. That's why they say, al al-naql. One of the principles of the people of innovation, al al al-naql. That they give precedence, priority to their intellects over and above the texts. It's got to fit with their mind for them to accept it. Simple rule with them. The attributes, the names and attributes mentioned in the Qur'an, their brains look at it, they work it out intellectually. If they can work something out of it, then they'll accept it like that. If they can't work anything out of it, either they'll reject it, or they'll completely distort it to something that they can work out and accept in their minds. So it's all about their intellects, and that's why the people of innovation go so far astray when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. Ahlul Sunnah taqdeemun naqal ala al-aqal. It is the texts that have the priority. In the texts we are being told Allah spoke to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa In the texts we are being told Allah spoke to Musa alayhi salam. Therefore, the conclusion we have is that Allah spoke to them. And they heard that so this attribute of speech is affirmed to Allah. That is simple for Ahlul Sunnah. Beyond that, our intellect, but how? Only when you start talking about how did Allah speak and how was the voice of Allah is when you end up upon the path of the people of innovation and you start thinking, okay, that can't be like that and it couldn't have been like this. So therefore, it's got to mean X, Y, and Z. Now you have to misinterpret all of the texts to fit with your X, Y, and Z explanation because your mind couldn't work out the how. Whereas Ahlul Sunnah, we've said Allah hasn't taught us the how. Allah hasn't given us that knowledge. Allah told us He spoke to Musa salam, spoke to Muhammad salam. We've been told that. How? That we have not been told. We haven't been given the how of the attributes of Allah. How Allah descends in the last third of the night. How Allah speaks. How Allah this. How Allah that. The how we haven't been taught. 
Allah hasn't given us knowledge of that. So we stay to where the texts and the revelation have taught us to stay at. The knowledge Allah has given us, that is what is incumbent upon us. That is the responsibility upon us to go beyond that. Then as they've mentioned <coughs> in the books of Aqidah, when you start to go beyond what the revelation has given you in the first place, you want to go beyond what the revelation has given you in the first place, that's when you're crossing the line into the territory where you're going to go astray. You're going to fall into philosophy, you're going to fall into the way of the mutakallimeen, you're going to fall into the way of the people of innovation by delving into a level that Allah hasn't given us knowledge of in the first place. What if a person says, but I want to learn more and I want to go deep. Why are you stopping me? What are you going to say? If a person says, look, I want to investigate, I want to go in deep and deep and further and further. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh-huh, true, yeah, that's mentioned. Ta'annut, it's mentioned. Ah, ah you're going to say that too? Anything else? An example, a real example that you could give them as to why you're wrong to say, I want to delve in, I want to learn more, I want to go beyond. A real example you can give them to show them you're wrong for this thought and you're wrong for claiming you want to just delve in more and get more knowledge. The fact that... Ah. Sahaba. The Sahaba, did they delve into that level of knowledge you want to delve into? The answer is no. Because if the answer was yes, you would have statements of the Sahaba at that level of the knowledge. How Allah this and how Allah that, you'd have statements of the Sahaba in that. There aren't. So the Sahaba never went into that level of knowledge. The fact that they did not go into that level of knowledge is an evidence. Because who were the greatest in their understanding of the religion? Who were the greatest in their striving and learning and memorizing and practicing and understanding of the religion? No doubt the Sahaba. You're not going to sit there and claim, I'm going to get a greater level of knowledge than the Sahaba got to. I'm going to learn things that even they didn't know. You're not going to claim that. The Sahaba didn't go into that because they knew it is not something to go into. They didn't go around asking how this and how does that work and how... They didn't ask the Prophet those questions because they knew... Allah hasn't given us knowledge of that area and it's not something to go into. We are not held accountable upon that. We are not responsible for that. We are responsible for knowing and accepting what Allah has informed us of in the texts. Allah has informed us, He spoke to Musa, He spoke to Muhammad We affirm and accept and acknowledge and believe in the attribute of speech then. Beyond that, we haven't been told and we don't delve into it. That is an important point because the vast majority of deviation occurs when people want to cross into an area 
that the revelation has not taught us of. So like we said before about the example of Allah descending in the last third of the night. Allah descends in the last third of the night, the famous narrations that are mutawatir. A person now accepts that Allah descends in the last third of the night, says, who is seeking my forgiveness, I'll forgive them, etc. So we believe that in the last third of the night is a virtuous time. That Allah descends to the lowest heaven, a time to make dua, a time to be upon obedience and worship and supplicate. We believe in that. That is what's in the texts. But then a person comes along and wants to go in deeper, wants to go into a level that is not in the revelation, is not something we are accountable or required to go into. He says, okay, so Allah descends in the last third of the night. That's what all of the authentic texts are saying. But right now, in the UK, the last third of the night is going to be at 4 a.m. or something, 3, 4 a.m. In 3, 4 a.m. tonight, the last third of the night will occur here. And then when it gets to 7 a.m., sunrise for us. But sunrise for us, it means the further west you go, What's happening? It's still the last third of the night. Sunrise occurs in the UK. Those islands in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, for them, they are still in their last third of the night yet. When sunrise occurs there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, those islands on the uh, uh, east coast of America, they're still in their last third of the night. There sunrise occurs, the west side of America, they're in the last third of the night. They get their sunrise, go across onto the Pacific Islands, they're still in the last third of the night. You go around the world, continuously somewhere is last third of the night. So then this guy comes along and says, so Allah descends in the last third of the night, but the last third of the night is always happening somewhere in the world, so does Allah, is Allah always descending? Is Allah always descending then? Because it is always the last third of the night somewhere in the world. What do you think? <coughs> do you think the Sahaba, none of them worked this out? Did the Sahaba know about time zones and how the sun comes up and down and different. Did they know about these things? Absolutely. In fact, the scholars, they say, in those days, the knowledge of astronomy and those types of things and sun and moon, the natural knowledge of it was far stronger than what they have these days to the level of ability and skill they had. That was known. It was known how the sun comes up and goes down, how in some parts... It will be daytime, how in some parts it will be nighttime. They knew about the different moon uh, sightings, how in one area the moon may arise one night, it may not in another area. That was known in those days. The famous example of Muawiyah when he came from Sham to Medina, and in Medina they were still fasting. Or the moon sighting hadn't occurred. Whereas in Sham, it had already occurred. So Ibn Abbas said to him, but it never occurred here. We're going upon what we saw. 
So they knew moon, uh, the, the circle of the moon, it changes, it's different, the sun and the time zones, all of that was known. With all of that being known, the Sahaba would have known this issue too. Clearly, that's not hidden. How come none of them ever went to the Prophet and said, so how, O Messenger of Allah, does this occur when it's always going to be nighttime somewhere? So what does that mean regarding the descending of Allah? How come none of them asked those questions to the Prophet Because they knew that is not what is required of us. It is not required of us to delve into that. What is required of us is to know that where you are, in the last third of the night, then the promise is there that Allah descends and answers the one who calls upon him. So you get up at the last third of your night wherever you are and do your dua, you fulfilled it. It's not upon us, but everywhere last third of the night. So how is Allah? Is Allah always descending? That is not here nor there. That is not knowledge we've been given. It is not something for us to delve into. But the people of innovation insist. They insist on delving into things that the Sahaba never dealt, uh, uh, delved into. They insist in going into topics that the Sahaba, the Salaf, the great scholars of the past, never went into knowing that they are not topics that are required of us. They insist. And when they insist, and they start talking about these things, okay, so how does it work then? Last third of the night, always happening. So it must be that Allah is always descending. So that must be that Allah is never above His throne. That's the next thing that comes up then. You see how one thing leads to another deviation after deviation. So you stick, as the scholar said, نَقِفُ حَيْثُ وَقَفَ الْقَوْمِ We stop at where the Sahaba stopped. They were the greatest in their knowledge and the seeking of knowledge, studying directly from the Prophet we stop at where they stopped. We're not going to go into anything more or be superior to the Sahaba, work out something they couldn't. So this is the mistake of the people of innovation in delving into affairs and using their intellects into the reality or into the names and attributes that takes them away from the reality of what is supposed to be understood. As Shaykh Al-Ithameen says, Going back to this claim of the Asha'ira that Allah doesn't speak, it's a voice that He creates somewhere that is heard. So, Ash-Shaykh al says, <coughs> that voice that is created, or, or, or this, is it the voice of Allah, or is it, or is it a voice that is created, or is it the speech of Allah? So they say, La ibara an kalamillah, that it is an expression of the speech of Allah. That is uh, close to the telepathic thing along those lines. They say the speech of Allah that is something that is in of himself and it is not spoken in that way. So their madhab in reality the Shaykh says is very similar to the madhab of the Jahmiyyah. هؤلاء يقولون أيضا ما سمعه محمد وموسى وجبريل all of these people of innovation say what Muhammad and Musa and Jibreel السلام, heard. That wasn't the, the speech of Allah. It was something created, a voice created by Allah that they heard. They didn't hear Allah. That's what they claim. 
That's why <coughs> all of them, they have the deviated opinion regarding the Qur'an in saying that the Qur'an is therefore created. It is not the speech of Allah, they say, it is created. And that is obviously incorrect. The Qur'an is not created. The Qur'an is the speech of Allah. Kalamullahi ghayru makhluq minhu bada'a wa ilahi ya'ud. It is the speech of Allah that is not created. From him it began and to him it will return. The Qur'an, the Mus'haf. You have the Mus'haf now. So what do we say? Created or not created? The Mus'haf. Copy of the Qur'an right there on the shelf. Created or not created? When you recite the Qur'an, you recite it. That's your voice. So, is the Qur'an created now or not? When you recite the Qur'an, that's your voice. No question about that. Your voice is obviously created. So when you're reciting the Qur'an, what's going on? Qur'an is now created or what? So what's the simple answer? Overall, overall answer is, the Qur'an is not created. However, if the Qur'an is written down in book form, in a mushaf, then the paper and the cover and the ink, that's all created. But the Qur'an within it, that isn't. When you recite your voice, your vocal cords, your, all of that is created. But the words you're reciting are not created. So when the Qur'an is not created, if it's in paper form, the paper etc. is created. If it's in recited form, your voice etc. is created. But the Qur'an is never said to be created. The Qur'an itself, the words of the Qur'an are not created. And these, that's the simple, simplistic way. But this is something, these issues of aqidah, that many people who haven't studied them in detail will fall astray on. And that's why Ahlu Sunnah focus so much on clarifying and explaining the aqidah properly. Many people out there now, many speakers out there now, they will have not studied the details of Aqidah. And that's why they trip up so much with this issue of the Qur'an a couple of years ago. Famous speaker, Yusuf Estes, making errors and mistakes in the Aqidah regarding the Qur'an because of his lack of understanding of this point, his lack of study regarding it. And that is the same for him and for whoever else. Those who have never studied properly these topics, never sat with the scholars, never gone through books in understanding the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah, then how are you going to go out there talking about the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah? How are you going to go around talking about things that you have no understanding of? There was the other famous example from him when he said the Salaf, Salafi, Salaf, you're saying I'm a dead man walking because Salaf, it refers to the predecessors. Those who came before. But that's because of his lack of recognition of what the Arabic language is and what the intent is and the meaning is. So when people don't have something to give, you cannot give it. 
فَاقِدُ شَيْلَا يُعْطِيهِ A person who doesn't have any goods, he doesn't have anything to begin with, cannot give it out to anyone else. So you have to be careful where you take knowledge from. You have to be careful you're not just listening to anybody who pops up on YouTube. You can't just Google things. For you're looking for some answer for some fatwa, you just Google it around anybody, any pops up on YouTube, he's talking about that topic. So you're going to listen to him. How do you know this person is qualified to talk about what he's talking about? Like we give the example before, if it came to a medical issue, some medical problem and you need surgery, you would not allow anybody to come along and do surgery on you. You would want a fully, properly qualified surgeon to work on you. Because otherwise, anybody who does it who's not qualified, a big risk to yourself and to your life. Similarly with knowledge, it's even more severe. That you wouldn't just take knowledge from anyone, you take it from the ones who are qualified to give it. So don't randomly YouTube anyone, randomly on all types of websites, all types of articles. Rather you go to the sources of knowledge that are trusted. إِنَّ هَذَا الْعِلْمَ Indeed, this knowledge is religion. So look to whom you take your religion from. So here we see how the people of innovation, they made many errors in their beliefs regarding the correct aqidah. And the sheikh, he goes on and he talks a bit more detail about the beliefs of the people of innovation and the explanation of that. But sufficient, suffice, uh, it will suffice what we've said so far, that will be sufficient for now, regarding the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the next chapter that begins now is a complicated chapter. Meaning, not complicated that you can't understand it, but it's complicated to the extent that you will require you will need to focus absolutely to understand it. Because the chapter is linked to the issues of the decree. And we already know in the narration, the decree is the secret of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Decree topics, when you delve into them to the level that we will have to touch upon in this next chapter, then it requires absolute focus. So from next session, we'll start that topic. Come next week with that mind inset to focus properly and carefully regarding the topic of the decree and regarding the will of Allah because it will answer those questions that people often ask. If there is a God, then why do all of these wars happen? And why do all of these calamities and natural disasters and these tribulations and murder and killing and genocide why do all of these things happen if there is Allah? Why does Allah will for these things to happen? Why has Allah willed for there to be disbelievers then? Those are questions you need to have a basic understanding of, an explanation of. But it needs focus. So from next week, come with those focused minds. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll begin with that topic straight after the Isha prayer. Inshallah. Any questions up to there or anything else to add for that tonight? Mm.
the knowledge of the names and attributes of Allah, how does it benefit a Muslim? Give some easy examples to highlight the point and then those examples are representatives of everything else. When you know, for example, that Allah, one of His names is Ar-Rahman, for example. You know that one of the names of Allah is Ar-Rahman. And you know that he has the attribute of Rahmah, mercy. Knowing that now enables you to understand that your Lord is the merciful one. Arhamur Rahimin, the most merciful of all of the merciful. If you know that and understand that, you'll know that when you commit a sin or an error or a wrong, which we all fall into, كُلُّ بَنِي آدَمْ All of the sons of Adam make error. When you do that, you do some wrong, some error, some sin. You remember though, that your Lord is the merciful. You remember though, the attribute of mercy, that Allah has mercy upon His creation. And that therefore aids you and encourages you to repent from your sin. Knowing that Allah is the merciful and one who forgives. That aids you in recognizing this of your Lord and therefore repenting and returning back to Allah knowing He's the merciful. On the other side of the example, you know that Allah, for example, is Shadidul Iqab. Allah is the one who is most severe in punishment. You knowing this about your Lord enables you to have an understanding. That if you commit sins, then your Lord is indeed the most severe in punishment. That will therefore encourage you to stay away from sinning, knowing the severe punishment that Allah will deliver upon those who perform and fall into those sins. If you know, for example, that Allah is a tawwab, the one who accepts the repentance. Similar example. You will therefore be forthcoming in repenting, knowing that Allah gives the repentance to the ones who repent. Knowing these names and attributes of Allah gives you a recognition of who your Lord is. That then impacts upon your behavior. If you know that Allah is merciful, it impacts upon your behavior in terms of recognizing you can repent then You need to turn back to your Lord and repent and Allah is the one who is merciful. If you didn't know that and you didn't have a recognition of that, then when you commit sins, the shaitan whispers to you, you've gone too far, you're lost, there's no hope for you. So you carry on with your sins and you carry on with your wrongs, believing that there is no hope. A bit like the example of the man who killed the 99 men and then he went to seek a fatwa, but he was told, 99 murders you've committed, you've crossed the line. Too late, nothing can be done for you. So then he killed that guy too and made it a hundred. No turning back for me, I've crossed the line. What difference does it make now? Then do another one. Whereas when he was told about the mercy of Allah and he can be forgiven, then that now changes your attitude and your outlook to things. So recognizing the names and understanding the names and attributes of Allah it is supposed to impact upon you and your behavior as a Muslim. How you see things, how you do things, your worship, your obedience, staying away from sins, 
recognizing all of the names and attributes of Allah aids you in that. That is the purpose. Throughout this book we've been doing lots. Throughout this book we've been doing lots. Even now what we've done right now, the speech of Allah. Does it not impact upon you knowing that Allah will speak to you on the day of judgment? Should that not impact the believer? That there will be no barrier, no translator. Every one of you, ما منكم من أحد إلا سيكلمه ربه يوم القيامة ليس بينه وبينه ترجمان That there is not a single one of you except that on that day Allah will speak to you and there will be no barrier, no interpreter in between. Does that not impact upon a believer knowing that Allah will speak to you directly? Certainly that should be something that impacts the believer. So all of these things, the names and attributes that we're studying, it is giving us a recognition of who our Lord is. And that is important because one of the questions on the Day of Judgment are, or in the Barzakh, in the Fitnatul Qabr, Man Rabbuka, who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? So that is the purpose of studying and learning the names and attributes of Allah. Anything else? <coughs> was there any homework? There was no homework. So the homework for this week, generally for those who are serious about studying and learning, go back and recap and revise the topic of the decree from wherever, whatever lecture, whatever book, just read into the topic of the decree so that you come next week having a background and your mindset onto the issues of the decree as a whole. And then we'll go into some of the more detailed areas next week, inshallah ta'ala. So we'll conclude now then, carry on next week after Isha, inshallah.